0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Kevin Sheehan and is from the 11th Sunday after Pentecost. So I recently learned of the existence of an organization called the Happiness Research Institute. Doesn't that sound like a fun place to work? I want to work there. It's it's an independent think tank that is devoted to trying to find out the factors that contribute to happiness in people. And use that research, they do studies in different cities, they they use that research to try to recommend public policy to help people out. Well, one of the studies that they've done is a study on Facebook usage. And what they found was that there was a correlation between heavy Facebook usage and general unhappiness. And interestingly, this this study was corroborated. It was in agreement with other studies that have been done in different academic institutions using different methods. There seems to be some correlation between these two. And you might wonder what that is. Well, no one's exactly sure, but there is a leading theory. One of the theories is that it has to do with envy. When we log onto Facebook, we see all of the lives of the people around us scrolling down on the page. But we don't see the whole picture, do we? We see Mike on vacation in Hawaii, we see the beautiful beaches. We don't see the rest of his time that he spends at his mind-numbing job that he hates staring in front of a computer with glazed over eyes. He doesn't post that on Facebook. We see Tina and her beautiful beaming baby boy and all the cute pictures. We don't hear that child crying all night long. And what we end up doing is we end up comparing our lives to the best version of everyone else's life around us, that self-selected version of themselves that they put on the internet for everyone to see. And so it's no wonder that we end up not feeling so great about our life. But we need to let Facebook off the hook. This isn't really a Facebook problem, is it? I mean, we're already pretty good at doing that without Facebook. That's what we do. As people, we seem to always want to be comparing our lives and what we're getting out of life to the people around us. We have a stuff problem. We see that people have stuff that we don't have, and if only we had that stuff, then we would be happy. If only I had that job. If only I had that, uh, that, that amount of money. If only I had that car. If only I had that family. If only I had that respect. The man in the gospel reading today who t- came up to Jesus had a stuff problem. Chapter 12, verse 13 says, Someone in the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, b- before you get down on this guy for being a money grubber, it's helpful to understand how inheritance worked in the ancient world. When a man died, his sons would automatically inherit an equal portion of his wealth, except for the oldest son, who would inherit a double portion. So, if you had nine brothers in a family, nine sons, you would have eight of them, who all share 10%, and the oldest brother would have 20%. Now, when you've got a large family, the brothers in this arrangement might look around and say, well, okay, yeah, the oldest brother got 20%, but hey, the rest of us got 10, what are you going to do? And probably be largely okay with that. But what happens if there are only two brothers? One brother, just by the very merit of having been born into the world first, he might be lazy, he might not care much for the father's estate, whatever, whatever his situation is, it doesn't matter, he gets double-double what the other brother does. He gets two-thirds, and this brother's over here just getting one-third. How unfair is that? Someone came up to me after the last service and said, yeah, it's unfair, but what about the women in the situation? What do they get? That's true. In, in, in ancient Israel, the answer was they didn't get anything. It felt a little unfair, and understandably so, And so this man, I don't know his situation, I don't know how many brothers he had, but he thought if anybody would understand the injustice of this, it would be Jesus, right? The rabbi who taught things like, blessed are the poor, who said things like, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Surely this teacher, this rabbi will take my side. He's the friend of the oppressed. He's the friend of the marginalized. So he asked Jesus to help him with this stuff problem. What does Jesus say? Well, Jesus wants to stay out of it. Very wisely, being Jesus. He says, man, who made me arbitrator over you? But that doesn't mean that he didn't have anything to say about the situation. Just because he didn't want to insert himself in this family dynamic doesn't mean that he didn't have anything to say. He did. But what he has to say was not just for this man who came to him with a stuff problem. He had a message for all of us. He said this to the crowd, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Take care, be careful of this thing called covetousness. It sounds like a made up word, but it's not. It's one of those Bible words that you don't hear in a lot of other contexts. It means wanting something that someone else has. It's tied up in there with envy. What he recognized was that this man's stuff problem was not what he thought the problem was. The man who came to Jesus thought his problem was that his brother had stuff that he didn't have and that his problem would be solved if his brother would give some of the stuff to him. That's what he thought his stuff problem was. Jesus saw through that. Jesus realized that his stuff problem was that he cared too much about the stuff. He was investing so much of himself into acquiring it. This is what covetousness does. This is what envy does. It's poisonous. It causes us to invest so much of our emotional energy, our time, our physical energy into acquiring things for ourselves that we feel like we need to have. And Jesus wants to spare us from that fate. It's a miserable fate of toil and working for something that ultimately is only temporary. And so Jesus offers us something today. He offers it in the form of a story in typical Jesus fashion. He offers us a way out of envy. It doesn't have to do with getting more of what we want. It has to do with the way that we use the stuff That we've already been given. Jesus offers us a better investment strategy for our stuff. That's what he offers us. A better investment strategy for our stuff. And we're gonna see that today in the story that he told in Luke chapter 12. Now this story has two characters. We've got a rich landowner who you might say is the main character. And then the second character is God. God doesn't usually turn up as a character in one of Jesus' parables, but this time we're going to get to see God's perspective on the situation. And so we're going to look together today first at our rich friend's perspective of the story, and then we're going to get to see God's perspective. So take a look with me at verse 16 in your bulletins or in your Bible. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Our rich friend has a problem. Sort of, right? (laughs) We might kind of roll our eyes and say, oh, wow, what a problem. He has too much stuff. (laughs) It doesn't fit in his barns. Uh, The internet in the 21st century has a word for that. We might call it a first world problem. Have you heard that phrase? Is a phrase popularized several years ago, which refers to problems that aren't real problems. They're like problems that you would only encounter if you were surrounded by wealth. Problems like, why can't my iPhone charger reach from the outlet behind my bed to my bedside table? How long can it be to make a longer iPhone cord? It's not really a problem, right? I could kind of see Jesus' audience rolling their eyes and saying, oh my goodness, Roman citizen problems, am I Right? This guy has too much stuff for his barn. Okay, let's, let's cut the guy a little slack. It is a real problem, right? It's an actual practical problem that he has to solve. He has more stuff than he has room for. What is he going to do? Well, this is what he does, or what he decides to do. He says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. He does what any good capitalist would do. He expands. And if the story ended there, I think this would just be the parable of the rich man who made a responsible business decision, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty practical. Okay, you don't have enough room in your barn, build a bigger barn. And then I wouldn't have very much to preach about because that wouldn't be a very interesting story. But it doesn't end there because we get to see what's going on inside of the head of this man. We get to see his motivations. We get to see what he's after. What is it? And I will say to my soul, or you could translate that, I will say to myself, self, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. What's this man's goal? He wants to set himself up for early retirement. He's looking for a life of comfort a life of pleasure good food good drink good golf i don't think they played golf back then but, but but a comfortable relaxing life that's what he wants but notice something else look at look at this passage he says what shall i do for i have nowhere to store my crops and he said i will do this i will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there i will store all my grain and my goods and i will say to myself self You have ample goods laid up. It's all about me. It's all about what he can gain and gather for himself. That is his priority. What does God have to say about that? I mean, it seems like this would get him everything he wants. It seems like this story should have a happy ending. But God said to him, fool, Whoa, God, strong words. Why does God call him a fool? It's an interesting choice of words. Notice that God doesn't say, you greedy sinner. There are other places in the Bible that talk about the danger, the sin of greed, the sin of envy. This isn't actually one of those places. This is talking about the foolishness of what this man is doing. Why is it foolish? What does it mean for him to be a fool? Well, if you look in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs, you'll see that the fool is someone who is the antithesis of the wise person. The fool is the person who consistently does things that are detrimental to his or herself. You might despise the wicked, but you pity the fool. Why are fools to be pitied? because they're only hurting themselves. And God is saying, this man is a fool. Why is he a fool? This is why. We find out. God sees something that he doesn't. This night, your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Our rich friend forgot to account for something when he was developing his investment strategy, it seemed like the answer to his problem was to make sure that he had enough goods in the barn to last for life. And it seemed like he had done that effectively. But as uh, one of our congregation members observed last week when I was uh, talking about what I was going to preach on, she said, well, he was set for life. Just his life wasn't going to last that long. He failed to account for the fact that he was mortal, that he was going to die, that everything that he had stored up eventually was just going to go to somebody else. It just so happens that it was going to happen sooner than he realized. He had a poor investment strategy because he was focused on this world, on this life. What he had was not a first world problem. What he had, rather, was a world first problem. Does that make sense? He was focused on this world first. And he had no regard to the next life. He didn't think about the fact that there was a life after this one. He was stuck in this world, in this first world. When there's a second world that is to come, he had a world-first problem. That's why it was foolish. The passage that we read in Ecclesiastes kind of deals with this. The kind of absurdity of spending our lives chasing after temporary goods. This wise man, who calls himself the preacher, observes that, wow, no matter how wise you are, no matter how hard you work, no matter how much money you make, at the end of the day, everybody dies, and you're going to end up passing off all that wealth to someone else, and who knows what they're going to do with it. It's absurd. This, friends, is the challenge that Christians have with worldly goods, with stuff. We don't think stuff is bad. Please don't get me wrong. God made stuff. He likes it. We're not Gnostics who believe that stuff is evil, that matter is evil. God could have made food taste bland, but he didn't. He made it tasty. He could have made the world look dull, but he made it beautiful and colorful. He made stuff for our enjoyment. The problem is when we invest our stuff, or invest our time and our money and our resources into stuff which is ultimately temporary. Temporary. That's the problem with stuff. It's not that it's bad. It's that this world, this stuff that we see is all temporary. That's why it's foolish to spend so much of ourselves chasing after it. That's the problem. The problem is not having possessions. It's this. Listen to verse 21. So is the one, he's talking about the fool now, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich man's problem was that all he had were possessions. He didn't have treasure in heaven. He was not rich toward God. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Okay. So how do you do that? Is there like a a bank account where we kind of deposit stuff in our heaven bank? Well, no, of course not. How does this work? Okay, track with me for a second. What did we say about stuff? We said it's temporary, right? So how on earth can we be investing in an eternal reality, in an eternal realm, if we're spending our money and our time and our energy on temporary stuff? That's not how you invest in heaven. If you want to invest in something eternal— You need to put those times and resources into something eternal. What's eternal that we see in the world around us today? Look around. What do you see that is eternal? People, right? As Christians, we believe in the resurrection. We believe that this life isn't the end, that there is a resurrection of the just and the unjust, and that people will live forever, either with God or apart from God. That is what is eternal. And so if we use our resources for people to invest in people, if we take care of the needs of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, if we use our money and our time and our resources for that, if we use our time and our money and our resources to make sure that people hear the good news about Jesus so that they can respond to him and spend eternity with him in heaven, that is investing in eternity because it's investing in the people who are going to spend eternity With or without God. And we want them, we want people to experience God with us for all time. But this is so hard to do, isn't it? It's so hard to do. It's so hard to break out of this cycle of envy that has been so ingrained in us. We've been the victims of very well done and very effective marketing that tells us that our lives consist of the abundance of our possessions. And sometimes it's not even just about possessions. Sometimes we're caught up in, in, in things like uh, in, in, in honor, in the respect that we feel that we deserve. Sometimes we're, we're caught up in, in wanting a certain position. There's so much that we want out of life, and we can get so caught up in what we see in this world. How do we break free of that? I want to suggest Two ways. We need to learn from the rich fool. We want to make sure that at the end of our days, we don't have a tombstone that says, here lies a fool, he was parted with his money. We need to learn from him. So here was his first mistake. He did not consider that he was mortal and eternal. If we want to break out of the cycle, we need to consider that we are both mortal we are going to die, every single one of us, or else Jesus will come back. But either way, the world that we have in this life is going to end. We are mortal, but we are also eternal. And so that means that we need to live our lives in such a way that proves that we actually believe in an eternity. There is this connection in Scripture that it comes again and again between what we do in this life, how we live our lives by faith, and rewards in heaven. I don't know how it works. Don't get me wrong. I believe that people are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We do not earn our place in heaven. But there is this connection consistently in Scripture between how we live in this life by faith and some concept of rewards in heaven. There's some continuity there. And if I asked any one of you, which is more important to you, this temporary life or your eternal life in heaven? Of course, the answer would be our eternal life in heaven. Because that's the right answer, right? We know that. It's in our heads. But what do we really believe? Father Stephen, our uh, canon theologian, likes to say that if you want to know what a person, what's really important to a person, look at their bank statement and their calendar. Because we always make time and we always will set aside money for the things that are most important to us. What is most important to you? Take an honest assessment of that. If the answer is not what you want it to be, you may need to do some business with God. I know I do. Where are you investing your time and your money? Which brings us to the second thing we need to do. look out for. We need to look out for the opportunities that God has given us already. The opportunities that he's given us to invest in people. We need to look out for the people that we're supposed to be investing in. It could be something very simple. I, uh, I heard a story just this week from a family friend of ours whose, whose daughter likes to draw, draw pictures. She does little crafts. And her mother likes to collect these and set them aside so that in the future she can look through them and see the way that her artwork has progressed. Well, they were in church, and her daughter gave her or showed her a picture that she had made, and she said, here, mom, do you want this? And she said, yes, of course, thank you. And her daughter said, that will be two cents, sorry, two dimes. (laughs) And her mother said, two dimes? She'd never charged her before. For, for a picture, but she'd said that, that she wanted it, so okay, I, I, all right, yeah, here, here are two dimes. And her daughter said, you know, mom, I usually don't charge, but I need to put a dime every week in the missions fund, and I'm running out of dimes, so don't worry, mom, this is all going to missions. <laughs> this little girl, this precious girl, had recognized that she had something that she could use to help people hear about Jesus. She took her two dimes that she made from drawing a picture for her mom and she put it towards missions, towards letting people hear the good news about Jesus Christ. Some of us are called to other things. Some of us have more time. And maybe God is calling you to use that time to encourage a friend who's going through a difficult patch. Maybe he's calling you to use that time to serve the church in some way where you've been gifted. Others of us have more money. I'm I'm astounded at the kind of sacrificial giving that I see at Church of the Resurrection. It's amazing, people giving of, of their resources in a sacrificial way towards the mission of the church to see people transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. It's what we have called being so kingdom responsive that we're kingdom irresponsible. Sometimes it looks like irresponsibility to the world when we choose to use our resources in a way that is an investment in the future. I know a, a, a man uh, uh, who I'm quite close to who had a job in the mid-70s in the IBM Corporation. It wasn't a high-level job. Um, it was you know, pretty basic, but it did come with some perks. And one of them was the company would set aside some money for its employees that they could receive either as cash or as discounted stock options. Now, can you imagine how much stock purchased in IBM in the mid-70s, before the advent of personal computing, would be worth today? It would be incredible. So what did he do? He took the cash. And <laughs> you might think, oh my goodness, how can you be so foolish? Well, before you rush to conclusions, hear the whole story. He had recently become a Christian. And just a few weeks later, he had this clear and compelling call that God was calling him to serve him overseas, and it was confirmed by his church, and he knew that he had to do it, so he left his job at IBM, took the money, took all of his savings and everything he had, and he put it down for his first year of Bible college. To this day, he is still serving the Lord, and he has been he's been on he's been overseas for 27 years and he he told me he's never regretted that decision and i'm glad he made that decision too because then he wouldn't have gone to if he hadn't he wouldn't have gone to seminary and met my mother and then i wouldn't be here speaking to you today that's my father and his decision cha- changed the shape of our family changed our trajectory and we don't regret it for a second When you use your resources in the way that God wants you to use them as an investment in eternity, I promise you, you will not regret it. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what God is calling you to do, but I believe that he wants to free you from your stuff. He wants to free you from that grip that it has on you, free you from the power of envy in your life as you're looking at other people's stuff, and just let it go. Father, we need your help. We don't know how to do this on our own. Lord, we get so wrapped up in what we don't have, the relationship that we don't have, the job that we don't have. Lord, help us to trust you as our provider. Help us to trust you that you have our future in your hands. Lord, free us from the grip of money. Help us to learn to give it away. Help us to invest in heaven. And most of all, help us to glorify your name. We pray this in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast.